I'm not going to be uh, preaching today. I'm just going to introduce our guest speaker today and uh, introduce the series that we are about to, to go through. Uh, and I would just want to begin by saying about uh, six months ago, the, the elders and Pastor Jeremy and I started uh, going through a study on the issue of the church. That is, what makes a church a church? What do uh, the scriptures say about it? What makes a church member a church member? What are our obligations and responsibilities to those who belong to this body of believers? And what should be the responsibilities and expectations of, of someone who identifies themselves as a part of this church? How are we to relate to one another? love one another, serve one another, edify one another, encourage one another. In what ways does that take place and how can we do it purposefully, biblically? So, as I said, we started studying through this about six months ago and then in the fall, the elders had a two-day retreat that was uh, totally de uh, devoted to pursuing God's direction on these kinds of questions. Um, and one of the major decisions to come out of that time together was uh, to present a series on the church during our Sunday morning worship services. We wanted to do it then because, at this time, because we feel like it was such a significant and important issue and the things we were learning were, were uh, of such import that we wanted to spread it to the widest possible audience of our church body. Uh, so we're uh, going to be doing this on Sunday mornings for a while. That means we'll be taking a break from the book of Romans. Uh, uh, and I have, been, I have thoroughly enjoyed going through the book of Romans and our exposition of that. But guess what? It will still be there in a couple months when we get back to it. And we'll just pick up where we left off in uh, Romans 5. But this is a worthwhile uh, venture for us to embark upon. Uh, so we have been, uh, as I said, looking through the Word of God, but also studying some other books on on church life, body life, membership, those kinds of issues um, that have helped inform us. And I just want to let you know some of these that that we've gone through. These uh, these five in particular, there are others as well. Uh, first one is called uh, the Deliberate Church. And, uh, in fact, a copy of this is in our library. Just as you go in the library on the table there, it's, I think, the first book on the sitting out there. So we want to we make these books available to you, too, because not only have they helped to inform us, but we, wa we want you to know the kinds of things we're reading so you can, if you're interested in doing that, you can check out a book. You can order one of these books if you're interested. Just let me or Pastor Jeremy know we can... We could order one for you. Here's another one called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, uh, a really helpful book. Uh, my favorite book to read was Why We Love the Church. This is written by two young guys, 30-something guys, who um, wrote Why We Are Not Emergent, and that became a, a top seller a couple years ago. And Why We Love the Church is uh, kind of a... Uh, counter to the the feeling out that's out there in the in the world and in the church that the 
the church is passe and we need to move on and, and they are making a case for why we should love what Jesus loves and he loves the church. It's a really good book. Um, a really practical one is The Trellis and the Vine. And the idea behind The Trellis and the Vine is, you know, if you can picture a trellis, um, nice, beautiful uh, arc uh, trellis, beautiful wood, well-maintained and so forth, but no vine. The trellis would be like a, the church structure and the vine is the church life, the body life. And you need to have but if there's not the, uh, the vine that's growing there, the, the life, then something's wrong. And so you have to have a right balance between the structure and the organism, the body life. And so it's, it's a good book on how to go about that. And uh, the hardest, and, but probably the overall most helpful, was this book. Um, very dense reading, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. It's a weird title. Um, and it gives some idea as to the writing style of this guy. It's not very easy to read, but very worthwhile in the, in the long run. The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. Um, losing my notes out of it. You know how we, we, we know that the gospel can be offensive to non-believers, and yet the gospel really is a statement of the love of God, isn't it? And so what we're saying there is the love of God can be offensive to non-believers. In the same way, in us, because the love of God challenges us, it can seem offensive to us. And, and the book is not meant to be offensive or confrontational or, or anything like that. In fact, it, it goes to great extents not to be. And the same thing with this series. Um, we trust that this series will likely challenge your notions of what the church is and should be. But challenge in a good way. Um, not to be controversial, but just the opposite. We, we pray and trust that going through this will, will cause us to have an even sweeter communion and deeper commitment and increased spiritual unity for having gone through this study. But in order to get there, we need to put aside preconceived ideas of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. To humble ourselves before God. To be open to his inerrant word. What does God say? And to pray that his spirit will guide us into what will be a God-honoring, Christ-centered understanding of what it means to be part of the body of Christ here at Martinsdale Community Church. Uh, Pastor Jeremy has been a very influential part of uh, this study. If you have any complaints, he's to blame. <laughs> but I haven't uh, uh, so much appreciated his, his input and insight uh, during these months of study. I've asked him, in fact, to do the uh, initial uh, message on this, to introduce us to the series and get us going on this. And then next week, I'll be preaching on the church as the body and the bride of Christ. But Pastor Jerry, come up and share God's word with us. Let's have a word of prayer as you do. Heavenly Father, we want to bow before you. You, you are Savior, are the Lord of the church. And we bow before you. And everything that we do here, everything that we say, we want to be uh, committed to you. With, with your sovereign guidance over us. 
and that you would use this time, this, this message today, this whole series to uh, bless us as a church body to be all that you have in store for us. And I pray for Pastor Jeremy now that, that you would by your spirit uh, speak through him to us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. perhaps why such a study might be useful because I'm, I'm guessing perhaps for some of you thinking okay we're going through Romans that's taking long enough now we're going to pause we're going to do a series to what is I know what a church is um, let, me, let me pose a challenge and all eyes up here no looking at the notes all eyes up here how would you how, how do you know what a church is what is a church and, and I mean a church not the church, but if you're looking at a particular group of Christians doing something, how is it that you would know if that particular group of Christians is a church or not? Um, or is every group of Christians a church? Uh, if you want to think of it on a scale, a spectrum, imagine two Christians on a bus riding to work that don't even know that they're believers. Is that a church? The same two or three believers on the bus, but now they're praying for each other and reading the Bible together on the bus. Or now we move a little further to a men's breakfast before work of some men in town getting together to pray and read the Bible. Is that a church? Or maybe a Thursday night Bible study. Maybe a Thursday night Bible study with some singing. Maybe um, a campus worship service. Or what about something like Ruth Harbor? Is that a church? Or Hope Ministry? I mean, they have a chapel. They have a chaplain. Is that a church? Or do you have to move all the way to having a building and a structure? What about groups that gather in, in gymnasiums? They don't have church buildings. Is that a church? Or maybe if you want to go all the way over here, you need a cathedral, stained glass windows, and an organ, and then you got a church. Where in this spectrum do you have a church? Because I think if you're anything like me, we can sort of take our experiences and come to the Bible. We can sort of assume things that we've been doing, and when you stop to think about them you realize, wow, I don't have a whole lot of idea. I didn't think through these types of questions until the last few years. When I first became a Christian, I went to a church because that's what you do as a Christian. And if someone said, well, why? I probably wouldn't have a terribly good answer. And he said, well, why do you gather on Sunday? I don't know. It's what I do. It's what I've done. It's what is done. And so... If you're thinking through this of what is a church, that's the first question we're going to look at, try to answer. But then the second and more important question is the so what. You know, without the so what, this is just a study in academia. What is a church? But why should it matter? And part of the reason it matters is, as Pastor Gary was mentioning, there's a growing movement and trend in our culture, some openly speaking and others just passively doing it, of sort of putting the church on the side, putting the church as optional at best, perhaps outdated at worst, um, attempts to just sort of talk in general terms about fellowship, um, a, an attempt to polarize relationships and love with structure and organization, as if those things are opposed. We need less structure and organization. We need more love and relationship. And what we fail to realize is that in the Godhead, those two things exist in perfect harmony with no conflict. Our God is a God of fellowship with himself. And yet there is order. The Father sends the Son. The Son obeys the Father. There is no necessary conflict between relationship and love and, and structure and organization. 
So if you've tried to come up with your answer of what the church is, I'd like now to try to walk you through the best answer I can give and then try to walk through the so what. And, and the goal being to stir some thinking in the coming weeks as we go through this as to why the leadership of this church believes this is an important subject. Um, it, it's so easy to take our experiences and come to the Bible, and, and we should try to do the opposite. Start with the Bible and then interpret our experiences. So a couple clarifications need to be made first. The first is there is a distinction between the church, the universal church, and the local church. The church consists of all believers everywhere, believers who are not yet born yet in all likelihood, if the Lord delays. That's the church. And a church is a local church. Now, it might surprise you to know that almost 80% of all the references in the New Testament to churches are to local churches. Paul's letter, the church that meets at Corinth, at Rome, at Ephesus, at Philippi. And, and Paul will take truths of the universal church and immediately apply them, we'll see this, to the local church. And, and the reason this distinction is important is because it's very easy for us to fool ourselves into thinking that we have a high view of the church and we will speak of the universal church in glowing terms. When the truth is that the local church in front of you is the clearest test of what you believe about the universal church in your mind. There's, there's a poem, um, I forget who wrote it. Oh, to be above with the saints I love, that would be glory, but down below with the saints I know, that's a different story. And it's easy, it's easy to have this grand vision of the universal church, and yet in practice to have a very low opinion of the local church. And yet Paul will move back and forth between these things as, as, as almost synonymous. If it's true in the universal, then it must be true in the local. Because of who you are in Christ as the body, Corinthians, here's how you need to live. But there is a distinction between the universal and the local church. Secondly, we've got to make a distinction between the local church and the parachurch. The parachurch are organizations, structures that, that exist, that don't even believe that they are churches, but they're, they've got structures and boards, and they're useful, and they're good. And, and at their best, they help the local church do ministry. Mission boards help organize resources, coordinate churches together. One church couldn't fully send and support a missionary. So a mission board, ideally, coordinates works for a number of churches overseeing missionaries. It's, it's very useful, very helpful, good thing. I don't think it's a church. I'll, I'll argue that. So we've got to differentiate between the parachurch, a good and great thing, but not the church, and the church, a church. Now, the chair parachurch is made up of members of the church. This is where it gets tricky, while not being a church, but okay, I'll move on. Um, so we've got to make that distinction. We're trying to get at what a local church is um, and what makes a group of believers a local church. And, and I'd like to address one probably common misconception. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew 18, I can imagine some of you here are thinking already, Pastor Jeremy, I know what a church is. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Those two or three believers in the bus, as long as they're purposely gathering in Jesus' name, reading the Bibles, that's a church. And, and this is the importance of reading a passage in context. I've heard, I used to say that and, and until I was shown otherwise, and, and I hear that regularly in, in, on the, from Christians and 
let's take a look at that passage to see what is, is being spoken of. The, the passage referenced is Matthew 18, 20. Truly I say to you, um, no, it's not 18, 20. Is it 18, 20? Oh, I'm looking at the wrong verse. I said 18, 20. I'm looking at 18, 16. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. But let's, let's rewind this passage a little bit and start back at verse 15, and you will see that phrase, two or three, pop up three more times. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take along two others with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in earth. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That phrase two or three shows up twice in verse 16 verse 19 and verse 20, and and the discussion is about church discipline. And what Jesus is promising is that when we see amongst us a a sinning brother who's unrepentant in our love for them, we go talk to them, they they resist us, they don't want anything to do with us, and we pray for them, we come back with two or three, and now they resist us again, and these two or three believers are thinking, should we take this to the leader? Who am I? I'm a sinful person too, And, and Jesus is saying, take heart that when believers faithfully do this, he's there. And their judgments will reflect his judgment so that what is bound on earth will have been bound in heaven. What is loosed on earth will have been loosed in heaven. That the church's judgments are anticipatory judgments. The church discipline isn't us making something happen. But it's us saying as best as we know our Lord and as best as we know what's going on, this is, this is where we think you're at. And Jesus is saying when we do that, Faithfully, we can take heart that he is there in our midst. Um, so it's really about church discipline. It's not a general truth of all believers necessarily. So what then is a local church? Well, I'm glad you asked. A local church is um, a group of believers committed to gather regularly around the word and sound doctrine Worship and prayer, mutual encouragement, and the use of gifts. So let's take a look at those three things first. It's a group of believers, and it can be any size. The New Testament has large church gatherings. Solomon's portico or porch in Acts is, is a massive area around the temple building, and they would fill it. We're talking thousands of people. And there's also house churches referenced in the New Testament. Size is, is not a necessary issue of a church where you've got to be this big or if you're this big, you're not a church anymore. Size is, is largely irrelevant in the New Testament when it comes to evaluating what is a church. Um, they're committed to gathering regularly. And, and the issue here is what, what around. Christians can gather together for many reasons. And, and reasons that are fine. We can gather together. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to gather together to watch the Super Bowl. That's fine. But if that's all we did, I I don't think we'd be much of a church. We we need to gather around the centrality of the word and sound doctrine. Now, you don't need to turn there, but listen to what Paul tells Timothy in in 1 Timothy. And remember, Timothy is left in Ephesus until Paul arrives to put the church in order. 
to set up the church, appoint elders, to, to sort of be Paul's man on the scene as the church is being structured and organized. And this is what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And then 2 Timothy 4.1-2, probably the strongest most solemn charge that I'm aware of in the Bible. I charge you, says Paul, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, people have argued about what in season and out means. I'll just tell you one thing. It's, it's one or the other. We're either in season or out of season, so this applies. Um, this applies. And so we, we get that. I mean, you're here today. You got up. You could have slept in, and you're here to, for the teaching and the preaching of God's word. And, and that's an important mark of a church and sound doctrine. That, that Paul is charging Timothy to, to be careful in his preaching and his teaching, that we gather around the authority of the word. The word of God creates the people of God, always, and it becomes our standard, it becomes our rule, our measuring rod. You shouldn't care what I have to say if it's, if it's not coming out of this. You, you shouldn't care about my opinion, you shouldn't care about what I think if it's not coming from and tied to this. And I know Pastor Gary would say the same thing. Um, you, you shouldn't care about my personal opinion if it's not if it's on true issues of truth. Um, if you're if you're trying to buy me a birthday present, you should care about my personal opinion. But but if if it comes to truth and who is God and what does He want us to do, my opinion is irrelevant if God hasn't spoken. Secondly, they gathered around worship and prayer. The first church in Acts two forty two, it's written that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And again, I, I think we get this. We, we sing songs, and we have times of prayer, and, and we understand that that's an important aspect of the church. Um, it's, it's not just coming to watch a message. Otherwise, you could just download a sermon. You could turn on your TV channel. But we're praying together. We're worshiping God together. And there's something about praying corporately, singing corporately that is different and praying privately and singing privately. And both are important. Thirdly, they gather not just to, to hear the word and study the word, not just to sing and pray, but to mutually encourage each other and use their gifts. Please turn to Romans 12. In a few years, we'll get here in Pastor Gary's sermon series. <laughs> and when we do, if I'm still able to read with these glasses, we will... Um, read <laughs> Romans oh no I, 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 I encourage him to slow down I, there are times where I'm like you covered eight wow okay no no don't, don't get the wrong idea about me I am all for um, going slowly through Romans um, Romans 12 4 to 8 and watch how Paul seamlessly moves from truths of the universal church to the particular church at Rome for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same functions, so we, though one, many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of each other, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If 
prophecy in proportion to our faith, of service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And, and so he's noticing that the body is gifted with particular strengths and gifts and that because we are in Christ one body, we are members of each other. There's a responsibility to serve and use our gifts for each other. And, and a local church should be doing this, should be recognizing each one of us here is, is special, gifted, important, unique, and plays a role. I hope that you're not coming here on Sunday morning simply to be passive, simply to fill a chair, at worst to check a box. Christians go to church, I went to church, therefore I am a Christian. And instead to realize, and hopefully you guys will catch a vision over the coming weeks of what the church can be, should be, what Christ desires it to be. And it's so much more than showing up, sitting in a chair, singing some songs, listening to a message, which is great, but there's so much more. And, and I hope that even by the end of this morning, you'll, you'll begin to catch a vision for that. But that is the first key element of a church. And I, and I expect this is the part that everyone here is going to nod their heads and say, sure. They gather regularly around the word, around worship, and around using their gifts and serving. Secondly, as overseen by biblical leadership. Biblical leadership. And this is the, the qualification that's probably going to start Xing out some of the things I mentioned, you know, just a, a men's group on a Wednesday morning before breakfast, a Bible study on Thursday night. Turn with me to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes to Titus, who he left in Crete, and he tells him why he left him there. Again, Titus is Paul's man on the scene. Paul's moving on in his missionary journeys and he leaves behind a trusted fellow worker and he tells him, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Literally, it says, I left you there to put in order the things that are lacking. See, there's groups of believers in every town, but there's no biblical leadership. There are no elders and he goes on to describe what an elder must be, and there's a similar passage in First Timothy 3. You see, without this, something's lacking, something's missing. You may have a group of believers, they may be gathering to pray and read the Bible, but without biblical leadership, it's lacking. And I say biblical leadership because... You see, if, if we apply elders and deacons, then we have a standard. If you just keep reading the next couple of verses, it's not optional. He says, if anyone is above reproach, a one-woman man or a husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict. And you see, this is a tremendous safety for us because we don't get to define who leads. God already has. It's not to say the things we make up in addition are necessarily wrong if we want to have a vision committee, if we want to have a leadership team. Uh, there's nothing inherently unbiblical about that. But to replace elder, 
deacon with such things. The danger, of course, is if we have the vision committee, the team of vision and leadership, or whatever you want to call it, who gets to define what that is and who's on it? Well, we do. And the second we get to define who leads, well, we pretty much can do as we please. It, it's, it's dangerous um, because there's no firm anchor holding things in place. The beauty of, of biblical leadership is every one of you has the right, the responsibility to look at your leaders, to look at the qualifications, and if you see a glaring contradiction, to say something. To say something. To say, hey, I'm, I'm confused. This is what Paul says to Timothy, an elder must be. You're an elder, and, and here's what's going on. Um, and so it's a safety you see, the second we move away from that to whatever else we want, well, who's, I'm the leader. You know, I'm, I'm the, the director of, regional director of outreach for da-da-da-da-da ministry, um, which, is, which is fine. I mean, those parachurch organizations need to exist, but each one of us shouldn't be moving far from biblical structures of leadership and coming out from underneath them, but more of that later. So a group of believers gathering around the centrality of the word for prayer, for service, directed, overseen by the authority structures that Christ has given his church. And, and finally, I think the third characteristic of a local church is that they exercise the ordinances that Christ has given. And again, this is where a lot of Bible studies, a lot of worship services are, are going to distinguish themselves from a church. First, in, in baptizing new believers. Now, I know that the New Testament has a record of, of people being baptized not in a local church. I'm not saying that you can only be baptized in a church, but churches should be baptizing new believers. Do you, you see what I'm saying? I'm not saying only churches can baptize new believers. F Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch after all. But as baptism is a sign, a visible sign, like, like my wedding ring, of the invisible work of the Holy Spirit baptizing you into the body of Christ, it's, it seems quite fitting that when possible, we should do it with the local church for the joy of the local church, the encouragement of their faith. Um, and, and churches should be doing that. When people get saved in our midst, we should be baptizing them. And that should be a joy for us. Jesus says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ten who need no repentance. And so when people get converted, when people get baptized, there's, there's a party in heaven. And there should be something reflecting that on earth here. Secondly, um, we, celebrating the Lord's table, communion. And again, I know that it's not only a corporate church gathering that can have communion. I've been at churches before, Bible studies have done communion. But churches should be exercising the Lord's table, communion. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. Now here, Paul is correcting, rebuking the church about the way they do the Lord's table. Um, it, it appears they would practice the Lord's table as part of a meal. They'd eat a meal, and at some point they would celebrate the Lord's table in it. Um, so 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. Um, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, now there's the key phrase, come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So Paul doesn't believe, he believes that when they come together, they are a church. That's key. 
when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine be recognized. He's like, oh, I get the fact that as some people hold to aberrant doctrine or, or have conflict, that there must need to be some division just so that the approved, the mature, the godly can be evident. But that's not the type of divisions they're having. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. One gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Corinth is this metropolitan town with slaves and sailors and all traders. And, and apparently when the church is coming together, some are eating and bringing a big meal. Others have nothing. They're not waiting for each other. Somebody's getting drunk. Another's going hungry. And this is supposed to be celebrating the Lord's table. And we don't need to keep reading, but here's the point. They're gathering regularly as the church. They're celebrating communion. Paul doesn't say stop doing it. He says do it better. So this is, these are the marks of a church that they, they are utilizing the, the signs, the ordinances that Christ gave them. And finally, they, they discipline unrepentant sin. We already read in Matthew 18 about how Jesus says, if your brother sins, go privately one-on-one. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or three. And then he says, if they don't listen to two or three, tell it to the church. And again, this is a tremendous safeguard because what it means is that you, myself, we don't have the right or the authority to discipline another believer. I don't get to say, I don't like Greg. You know what? I'm just going to treat him like he's an unbeliever. I'm not going to have any fellowship. I don't get to do that. I don't have that authority. And it would be frightening if I did. We'd, all the people we didn't like would be unbelievers to us, right? But only when we go through a procedure that Jesus says he personally oversees, and only when the local church is in one agreement and of one mind can we say to us, you are a tax collector and a Gentile. To us, we have to treat you like an unbeliever. The Lord knows where you are, but we are going to love you best by loving you from afar and praying for you. Turn, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We see an example of this. An example of this. And again, it's clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that this is something that can only come to its final point in a church. In a church. The situation here is there's a gentleman in the church who's been having an affair with his stepmother. And the church, rather than deal with it, has celebrated their tolerance. They're so tolerant. They're so non-judgmental. And they celebrate it. And Paul rebukes them for it. And then in the part where we're concerned, in verses 3 to 5, he writes, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, see how, remember, in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered doing this, he's present, so Jesus is present in power. When you gather together, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And what that means is that the church is saying, we love you, but we are no longer, while you're unrepentant, going to um, help protect and allow you to do this. We are, we are withdrawing in a position of, of prayerful love. And, and God's going to let Satan smack this guy around with the hopefulness that it will bring the man to repentance for his ultimate salvation. It's not vindictive, mean-spirited shunning. Rather, it's we love you, but I think we're going to love you best by letting you reap what you sow, by letting you see the 
sowing and reaping principle, that you're sowing the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's a kindness of God that allows us to reap consequences for our sin because otherwise we just keep sinning and enjoying it. Like I'm just keeping getting blessed from my sin. I'm sinning and my life's getting better and better and I'm happier and happier and we'd never repent. And so this is one of those extreme mercies. This is one of those things. But, but Jesus only gave this type of power because it could be so easily abused to a church. Not a Bible study, not a mission board, but a church, a properly functioning church. So that's my, that's my three-point minimal structure of what is a church. And, and we may, maybe could add further points, but it's a group of believers gathering regularly around the centrality of the word and prayer and worship and service, directed, overseen by biblical leadership. They've got an elder or elders. They've got deacons. Maybe they've got their own things as well, but they at least have the structures that Christ gave. And they're regularly doing the things that the church is supposed to be doing. And you could add to that evangelism, you could add to that all sorts of things, but the things we can't do by ourselves. I can't have communion by myself. I suppose it's possible, but I, I don't think I could baptize myself. Um, and, and I certainly can't discipline anybody myself. The, I need a body to do these things. And, and and so when we gather as a body, as it's appropriate, we should be doing these things that Christ has given us to do. Now, now again, to be clear, I'm not saying that non-churches are bad. If this means your favorite Thursday night Bible study isn't a church, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There are many gatherings of Christians that are good, that do good things, that aren't churches, which leads us to the so what. Because you might buy my definition. You might say to Jeremy, okay, I, I buy that. That's a church. Great. But I still enjoy my men's Bible study over here and I, my Christian blog over there and I listen to a sermon online. I, I get church. I get my fellowship with believers. What, what's the big deal? And again, I am glad you asked. The so what? The church matters. The local church matters. Six reasons. The first, Jesus Christ died for the church. See, in our day, in our culture, we so emphasize the individual believer's relationship to Christ, which is a tr great truth. You don't need a pope. You don't need a priest. You are priests, if you're believers, to have a relationship with God. It's personal. It's direct. The only mediator is Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. But we can so emphasize that truth that we sort of end up with, a, well, it's just me and Jesus walking off over here, and yeah, the church is nice and all, but it's just me and Jesus, and we'll figure it out. But Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, Jesus died for you in so much as he died for his people, his church. Um, the, the New Testament doesn't ring that emphasis that we'll often hear of, you know, Jesus just died for me. He died for his people. He died for his church. Husbands are to love your wives precisely the way Jesus did by dying for his bride. So the church matters. The church matters. And, and we can so emphasize our individualism. And we should be very suspicious of things that give us more freedom, less accountability. We can come and go as we please. Um, it, it's just not the, the model. It's not the balance. It's not the tone of the New Testament. Secondly, Christ's kingdom will be built through the church. 
And I'm thinking of Jesus' great statement in Matthew 16. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church, we sang it earlier, must be victorious. Jesus has said so, and he will not lie. But there's no such promise given to anything else. Mission boards may be helpful, but there's no guarantee they'll be victorious. And and what this means is if we're really concerned with God's kingdom advancing, then all the ministry we're doing should be channeled through, working through the church. Because after all, the church is the unstoppable, ultimately victorious. The gates of hell cannot stand against Christ's church. And I want to devote my life to something, but I want to devote my life to something that has a chance of winning of succeeding. And Jesus has told us that his church will not fall. And so, if we want to do ministry, if we want to reach the lost, if we want to impact the world, rather than adopting a maverick mentality of I'm just going to go over here and do it myself in my own little way with no one to answer to, Why wouldn't you want to team up with the unstoppable bride of Christ? Thirdly, we are saved into the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all are members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or slaves, Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. And what Paul is saying is at your conversion, when the Holy Spirit baptized you, of which water baptism is a sign so this is the baptism that saves. This is the, the gift, the filling of the Holy Spirit that, that comes when you are justified, when you are forgiven, when you are adopted as God's child, when you receive his spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. When that happened, you were baptized into the church. You're baptized into the church. That's where Christ put you. When he gave you new life, he birthed you into the church. You were born again into the church. And how strange it would be then as new creatures with new lives and new affections, new hearts, that we might be tempted to put the church on the side and live our lives as though we were born again into our job, born again into our lifestyle, our hobbies, born again into our favorite sports team. Right? If we live our lives as though what matters, what is central, is not this new birth, this new life that I live for Christ in his body, but that was where I was born again into, what does that say about the reality of our salvation or perhaps just our understanding of our salvation? We weren't born again to have the exact same life and lifestyle as those who are dead in their sins walking around us. We were born again into the church. And, and a life that sees the centrality of that um, is, is, is only fitting, appropriate. Fourth, we were gifted for the church. We received spiritual gifts for the church. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Well, perhaps you're already there from our 
Last point. And Paul writes, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Whatever spiritual gifts you have, whatever strengths you have, whatever abilities you have do not exist for your own good, for your own advancement, for your own pleasure, for your own joy. They exist and were given for one reason, the good of all. You keep reading. Everyone jumps into chapter 14 trying to figure out tongues. The whole point of 14 is Paul says, tongues without interpretation doesn't build people up. You should be elevating, desiring, celebrating, preaching, and prophecy because that's what builds people up. The whole point is seek the things that serve the good of all. If you're born again, then the Holy Spirit has given you gifts. He has equipped you. And yet we can bury those things in the sand. And that's what we're doing if we aren't pouring ourselves into a local church to use those gifts for the good of all. We're gifted for the church. We were saved into the church. Look at verse 14 to 18. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You get that metaphor? That means that each one of us is a vital part of this body. I don't know about you, but I would not be happy if my pinky finger decided to take a month off and go sew itself onto Zach. And yet the danger is, you know, you know the child's toy, Abner for his birthday just got a Mr. Potato Head, right? You know what a Mr. Potato Head is? The danger is, if we have too cavalier of an approach to church, we're, we're playing Mr. Potato Head with the body of Christ. Like, oh, I really like this thing. I'm a, I really like this program. I really like this sermon series. I'm going to get plugged in. So you, you plug that arm on. Stuff comes up. Another church down the street's having a, a nice later service. Your, your favorite sports team's games or whatever it is. Pluck it off again. Maybe just to stand over here. Maybe to plug on to another church just for a little while. And we play Mr. Potato Head with the body of Christ. And when I describe it like that, it seems grotesque. But we have language. We have phrases that we use to justify our actions. You are gifted for the church. Fifth, we need the church. We need the church. Turn with me to Hebrews 3. The book of Hebrews is concerned in large part that believers finish well, that they don't make a start of things and shipwreck their faith, that they don't fall away. 
And so it, the writer goes back and forth between lifting up Christ as superior to Moses, superior to the angels. His covenant is greater than the covenant Moses brought. And then he'll stop and give these warnings and encouragements lest the believers who, according to the writer, he's not sure where they're at, they, they might fall away. And we're going to look at two of those. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now I want you to look at this passage and notice the shift between the singular and the plural. Take care, brothers, plural. So Martinsdale Community Church, all y'all, take care, lest there be in any of you, singular, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, singular, to fall away from the living God. So the entire church has to watch out that any individual one of you might fall away. What is the cure? What is the remedy? What is the guard against an individual falling away from the church? Exhort, you all exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you, singular, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I can't do this to myself. I can't exhort myself in this fashion. You see, if I'm going to be guarded from falling away, you have to do that to me. And I have to do that to you. And we have to do that to each other. The writer of Hebrews is saying, church, you all watch out lest there be any individual of you all. And that individual might start to fall away. So you all encourage you all every day so that that doesn't happen to any one person. And none of us can do that for ourselves. None of us can encourage ourselves this way. And so we need the church if we want to be faithful. We need the church to persevere. You need the church. I need the church. And we can tell ourselves we don't. We can tell ourselves it's just Jesus and me. But, but the Bible says differently. I know this isn't the only Cure the only measure to protect against a falling away. But it's the one the writer of Hebrews comes back to again. Go to chapter 10. Verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We're back on the topic of persevering, holding fast our hope. And how do you do that? Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do you hold fast without wavering? You keep gathering together. You keep encouraging people. You actually spend time thinking about ways to encourage others to faith and good works. That would be a great thing. I, this would be a wonderful thing if every one of us, before we gathered together on Sunday morning, spent even a minute thinking, how can I encourage Zeb to faith and good works? How, Lord, let me be an encouragement so that somebody in this body is going to be a little more encouraged, a little more strengthened, that they will be a little more unwavering in holding the confession of their faith. And this is such a wonderful advantage, such a wonderful blessing of the body of Christ I heard a sermon illustration once. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but it, it preaches, so I'll use it. Um, that there was a Scottish pastor 
who had a congregant who he hadn't seen in a long time, and he went over to his house, knocked on the door, and the guy let him in, and they sort of sat by the fire for a while, not really talking. And rather than say anything, they was there sitting there drinking coffee, he took the firebrand and messed around with the fire and took one red-hot ember, coal, a chunk of wood, and just separated it from the rest of the body. You try this sometime if you have a fireplace. Just take one part of the wood, one, and it can be bright red. I mean, that thing looks like it's on fire, hot, burning. You just move it off of the rest of the lump. And very quickly, what happens? It cools down, becomes black, begins smoking. And, and the story goes that that's all the pastor had to do. He didn't say anything, and the guy said, I'll, I'll see you next week. <laughs> he got the point, right? Um, and... We need the church, and, it's, and it's, it's a lie. It's self-deception to think we don't. We do. And, and finally, the church needs us. It's not just we who need the church, but the church needs you. Now, we're going to have an entire message in this series on Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, but I'd like to close there. Turn with me, please. Um, it's this wonderful picture. This is, this is what gets me excited. My, my goal this morning is not that you would feel rebuked or guilted, into, I guess I need to get more, but that you'd catch a vision for this glorious bride of Christ. Now, she's not glorious yet. Jesus is still working on her, still working on me, still working on you. But this picture of everything working properly, this is how things are supposed to be. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he, this is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Why did he give them to the church? to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now that's a really important point because it means the work of the ministry isn't for the pastors, the teachers, and the prophets. Or it is in as much that they're saints, but so are you. The work of the leadership is not to do the ministry, but to equip, encourage, and lead everybody in the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? Once again, I am glad you asked. The building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Pause there. So this is a maturity that has to do with truth, understanding of doctrine, it's a maturity that has to do with love and good deeds. And then he goes on to give an even clearer picture. Look at this 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. But notice the conditions here. This only happens when each part with which it is equipped is working properly. And this comes back to your gifting. This church, any church, is only going to grow, build itself up in love, become mature and stable as each part is working properly. So if, if you're thinking of your relationship to this church or any church, it's casual, well, if we have time, if, if it's not too nice of a day, that's the danger. If it's too nice of a day, people want to go and, and play. And if it's too bad of a day, they don't want to drive. So if it's a medium day, if my favorite sports team is not on, there's nothing better to do, then yeah, we'll go to church because that's what Christians do after all. And I'm a Christian, so I'll go to church. 
also add in that much less than I'm, the body won't be functioning properly. That when you pull yourself away from the body, you go back to the fire illustration, not only is that one lump cool down quickly, but that blazing fire is that much smaller, is that much more diminished. That, that your absence, your non-connectedness with the body affects every one of us. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is distressed and I am not troubled? We are members of each other. Your struggles are our struggles. Your victories are our victories. Your sorrows are our sorrows. We weep with those who weep. We are members of each other, and if one member suffers, all suffer. If one is exalted, all are exalted. And it's this vision of every part working properly and this bride building itself up in love, speaking the truth in love to itself, speaking the truth in love to unbelievers, converting them, building them up as the bride of Christ becomes more and more pure, more and more holy. She looks more like her husband. I I just get so excited about that. And as I see that happening more and more, and it's not that this church is utterly failing in this, it's just let's do this more. Let's embrace this. Let's get a vision for this. This is why Jesus left you on earth. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Why didn't he just take you up into heaven? Why would he allow you to continue to struggle with sin, discouragement, to continue to offend him, to continue to give reproach to his name by sinning? Why would he leave you here? It's because he birthed you into his bride, his church. He equipped you for his church. He gave you the task of speaking the truth in love and building the church up, speaking the truth in love to unbelievers. There is one great commission to disciple the nations by teaching, baptizing, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus said. Sunday morning is just as much fulfilling the great commission as we encourage you to observe what the Lord said as frontier missions. Because there is one commission, the discipling of the nations. And that is why Jesus has left you on earth and equipped you and birthed you into his church. No other reason. That's why we're here. And the challenge for us is to embrace it, to get excited by it, or to say, well, that's not really for me. I'm not really interested in that. And I just encourage you to think through these things and in the coming weeks as we teach through this series to, to ask your questions and, and to be Bereans and search the scriptures to see if what we're saying is so. But at the end of the day, that you would realize your role and your place here or perhaps if this isn't your church and you're here for a time, you're a college student, that wherever your church is, that you would make it your goal to more and more be that joint, that member that's supplying what is needed. So that the church would build herself up in love, speaking the truth, that God would be glorified, that his kingdom would be advanced, that the gates of hell would not prevail, so that sinners would be converted, and so that our joy would rise and we would hold fast to our confession. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your church, your bride, that you have not left us alone, but you birthed us into a new family, a new community. We love each other, that we are gifted to serve each other, that we exist in part to, to encourage one another. Well, Lord, help us not to devalue that, but to see the priority of your bride, your church, to, to see your plan for her and, and our role in that. 
Well, Lord God, I am so thankful for this church here, and I'm so thankful for the many ways in which so many here are doing these things. Help us to do it more and more, better and better. For your glory, for our joy, for the lost, for our strengthening in the faith, oh Lord God, give us the grace, give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.